Hello and welcome back to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and uh, I'm joined once again by my co-host, the Rido, the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. We're back in Palmerston North today at King's Grace. Rido, hi, welcome. Hi, how are you, Brent? I'm, I'm good. I've had an interesting diversion off the state highway as I drove, I drove down today via uh, another part of the country I'd never been to, so that was nice. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, being diverted is never that fun, but oh, it, it was it was it was it was, it, it was a very brief diversion, but totally unexpected. Anyway, uh, now we're back in the Gospel of Mark, and and I really have enjoyed going through Mark with you. It's been fabulous. Yeah, it's such a good gospel, isn't it? And uh, it's short, uh, it's to the point, and we get to see who Jesus really is, I think, mm-hmm. in Mark. Yeah. And so today we're back in uh, chapter 8, uh, looking at verses 22 to 33 today. Now, Ian, what did we see last time in verses 1 to 21 with the feeding of the 4,000 and uh, the Pharisees demanding a sign? Yeah, so what, what we've seen so far is this building uh, kind of question about who Jesus is and kind of we, we get to the end of what we uh, kind of looked at last time and Jesus just kind of exasperated kind of yeah don't you understand who I am yet and this is the problem is that the Pharisees have seen all the miracles they've seen uh, everything that Jesus has done they, they've been listening to his teaching but they just don't get it yet Mm. Oh, but they're going to well. One of them at least gets it today in the, in this passage. Yeah. So it's kind of this. We're, we're building to this kind of point of um, you know, kind of a, a climax of you know, when are they going to finally get it? And it seems that they kind of get it today. Yeah. And uh, so we're in really one of the most important passages in Mark. In fact, you describe it in your uh, sermon, I think from memory, as a turning point. Now, why is this passage so important and why is it a turning point? Well, up to the, this is actually a point of contention in my marriage is that my wife doesn't, doesn't agree that it is the turning point in Mark, but that's another conversation. Oh, okay, what does she think about I it? I think the sorry Phoenician woman is the turning point. Anyway. Oh, because she actually confesses first yeah. in one sense. Yes, Yes. yes, so it's not a, it's not a big co- you know kind of po- point of contention. We don't argue about it, <laughs> you know, kind of every day. Uh, but whenever I preach on it, she goes, "Oh, I don't, I don't agree with you." <laughs> but um, what what's been happening is from the very beginning of Mark right up to this point, where we are all asking, "Who is this Jesus?" Uh, and so this is the point where it gets answered. Uh, not completely, uh, but then it seems to change from then on to a different question. Mm. Now, how in this passage do we see the disciples starting to get something of who Jesus is? The light is dawning slowly. You're yeah, going to see uh, Peter's confession as we kind of work through it. But there's something interesting about it. They, they get it, but they don't get it. That's mm. what we're going to see. Yeah. Now, if Mark's gospel is a quest, um, sounds a bit like the man of La Mancha, but whereabouts are we up to in the quest? So we're kind of at the point where everything seems lost, you might, you might say. You kind of, you know, we, we've set out to do our job and we're kind of going along the road to kind of get there and, and we're, we're at the point where everything seems to have kind of failed a little bit and we kind of, something needs to change at this point uh, and f- for the quest to go on. Mm. Now, in what ways does every turning point in a story, because I know you've written about this, in what ways does every turning point in a story have an element of death about it because today's passage certainly does have an element of death doesn't it yeah when you when you read stories and there's kind of this point where everyone is kind of giving up 
that that there's always a point that they talk about, you know, kind of particularly uh, people that advise on on writing and things like that. That when you have a turning point, a point of hopelessness, there has to be a, just a hint of death in there somewhere, and we have that today. Yes, and what way has the turning point? in Jesus' story here in Mark, a hint of death about it. We're going to see where Jesus is heading. Uh, He's not heading into this glorious kingdom, you know, kind of of victory that that we're expecting, but he's heading towards his death and resurrection. Mm. Uh, And that will be the kingdom, but that's the unexpected twist at the end. Mm. Yes, so we'll look at chapter 8, verses 22 to 26 to start off with. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And this always is curious, this business of spitting. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Now, um, I don't, is there any significance to the fact that this healing takes place at Bethsaida? I couldn't find any. I don't know. Where is Bethsaida? It's in Jewish territory. It's in Jewish territory. Yeah. Um, and I think Bethsaida might be a place of uh, turning points and dramatic healings and so forth and in the Bible generally. But why does Jesus spit on the man's eyes? Don't know. He kind of does. You know, he, does he does random things all the time, doesn't he? Sometimes he spits on the ground and makes a little mud pie and puts it on people's eyes and. Yeah, there's other. There's another point where he is. Uh, he doesn't he spit on his hand and touches the man's tongue. That's in John. Yeah, mm. yeah. You, you've got all these random different things that Jesus does. I, I'm not 100 percent sure. Maybe it's got to do something with uh, there is magical powers in Jesus in, in Jesus kind of uh, bodily fluids or something. Well, it's interesting that uh, uh, he uses clay, doesn't he, or mud, and and God creates man out of clay. Mm. And I'm wondering whether the idea isn't that this is somehow uh, symbolic, representing the fact that these men are about to be become new creations. They're about to be restored. So there's some kind of baptism, almost kind mm. of idea, mm. as a part of that as well. Mm. Mm. Possibly, yeah. Um, why does it take two attempts for Jesus to heal the man? Do you think? Well, I, I think this is it's a kind of a trick that Mark puts in there uh, because okay. whether whether these. Um, all these stories are chronological. We kind of uh, is kind of up for grabs here. Uh, but what what seems to be is that the disciples are going to see, like men, you know, kind of like this man. He sees, but he doesn't really see, and mm. that's what we're going to see mm. as ourselves uh, about the disciples. That they they're going to get who Jesus is, but they're not really going to see be able to see who he actually is. Mm. Is there any significance? Because I've often wondered about this to the man. Initially, seeing men like trees walking. Why? That, why does Mark include that detail? Mark love, loves to include these kind of random details, doesn't he? You know, kind of like the green grass that, that everyone mm. went and sat, sat on. Um, yeah, I don't know. How does a man know what a tree looks like? You know, he's been blind. Maybe he went blind or something like that. We don't. We don't know. But it's kind of it's, it's an interesting thing. Like sounds like something out of a Tolkien you know, kind of novel, doesn't it? Yes, it's like we're having. A, he's looking at ants, and we're yeah, about to yeah. have. But but I mean I I forget who it was who suggested it. it might be Alistair Roberts actually. In one of my um, chats with Alistair, or it might be something I written read by Alistair that Alistair has written. I can't remember. But presumably, when the man says this, I see men like trees walking. He's looking at Jesus. 
And if you think he's who is Jesus, he is the true tree, mm. the okay. the the one who is the ultimate tree, the ladder between heaven and earth, the cosmic tree, the true cosmic tree, the man who brings heaven and earth together and restores creation. And also, of course, he's going to die on a tree. Mm. Yeah. Yep. And I'm, I'm, I thought that was brilliant. Whoever thought that up? Well, that, that's about to pop up, right? Ne- you know, next, isn't it? You know, yeah. kind of his crucifixion. Yeah. Yes, and and Jesus, Morton, just straight after this, starts talking about his crucifixion on a tree. That's yeah. right. Yeah. How does the man's blindness here compare and contrast with the disciples' spiritual blindness? Yeah, that, that's the whole thing sitting in the background. Is the spiritual blindness? And Mark uses these kind of narrative techniques to kind of highlight. Uh, kind of what's going on underneath by doing something physical on the surface. And Mark, Mark, Mark is such a good writer in being able to do this, isn't he? Yeah, how does he use the man's healing here in the narrative? Because what Mark is trying to say is that just like it's this man, it takes kind of two times for him to be able to be healed, the, the spiritual blindness of the disciples, it's going to take more than just one healing for it to kind of happen. Mm. So the man's restored sight in this passage compares and contrasts with the disciples' partially restored sight yes. in, in the next part of the chapter, do you yeah, think? Yeah, and it's not until Jesus' resurrection that, they, that their sight is actually going to be fully kind of be restored. Mm. So it's going to be a long time for that to actually happen, uh, but they're going to get it a little bit right now. Mm. Okay, let's carry on with verses 27 to 30 of chapter Eight, and this is the turning point. Uh, well, if you follow Rito, if you follow Rito's wife, it's not the turning point. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, Rita, what's the significance of Caesarea Philippi here? Well, they're, they're moving further and further into Gentile territory, aren't they? Mm. You know, away from Jerusalem, away from the seat of power, away from you know, kind of victory. Uh, and so they're moving further and further away. And it could be seen that Jesus is, is kind of going to a rebel camp even, you know, kind of in this place, uh, to, to kind of train his disciples to go and take Jerusalem. Mm. Why does Jesus ask his disciples that question there in verse 27? Why does he ask them who, do, who people say that he is? Why doesn't he just ask them straight out to start off with who they think he is? It, Jesus asked such good questions. You know, I, I wish I could ask this, you know, kind of the way that he is able to ask questions. I, I wish I could do the same. But what he does is, it's quite interesting, isn't it? He does, it, he does generally, you know, kind of, who are the, who, what are other people saying about me? And then he targets them, but who do you say I am? You kind of, it's, Jesus is not really that interested in what other people are talking about him, but he's just trying to open up the question so that he can target them. Mm. Well, why does Jesus then make the question personal? Who do you say I am? And they say, what do they say? Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Why does he then say, well, who do you say I am? Because this is the question we've all been asking up to this point. Uh, who is this Jesus? We know, kind of sitting on the outside, uh, who, well, at least we know who Mark thinks that, that Jesus is, uh, and hopefully we've come to the same conclusion uh, but now it's it's getting personal. Who do the characters in the story, those closest to Jesus, who do they think Jesus is? Mm. And what does Peter answer? And what's the significance of uh, the word Christos or the title Christos, the Christ? Yeah, so 
that's what it says, you are the Christ. And, you know, what Peter means there is probably up for debate, but Christos is king. You know, it's kind of the Messiah. Uh, it's, it's so much of a loaded word, uh, particularly for a Jewish person, uh, that this is the son of David. You are the son of David. You are the one to come and restore Israel. You are the one uh, who we've been long waiting for uh, to come and restore the fortunes of, of our nation. And so Jesus you know, kind of is, is asking him, uh, kind of, who do you say I am? And Peter is rightly acknowledging that he is the king. Mm. So Peter gets it. It's taken him long enough. Well, it seems that he gets it. It seems that he gets it. But I don't know if he does, does he? I'm not, I'm not sure. Let's, let's read on. Uh, verses 31 to 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of of man. Now, okay, um, how does the gospel take a shift from here? So we, we move from asking who is this Jesus to what has he come to do? And so what type of Christ is he going to be from here on? And it says there that Jesus sp- spoke plainly about mm. these things. Yep. So clearly before there's some kind of hidden hiddenness or mystery uh, to, to what Jesus has been saying, but now he's actually speaking plainly about what's going to happen. Mm. How and in what ways do we get a... Here's your hint of death, Rito. How do we get a hint of death here at this turning point in the quest? It's, it's not much of a hint, is it? <laughs> it's pretty overt, actually. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what, what does he say? Um, you know, that, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. You know, well, I guess it's a hint because he's going he's to rise again, but, but it's pretty overtly... I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be killed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I don't think they would have understood the resurrection, but at this point, probably. No, well, they don't, because when we get further on yeah. uh, to the transfiguration, Jesus again speaks about that. And what, and what are they, that's the question they have. What does he mean by, you know, rise again? You know, kind of, mm-hmm. you know. Okay, so why does Peter respond to Jesus the way he does here then? And, and rebukes him. Because this is not the type of Christ he wants. Or this is not the type of Christ anyone, anyone wants. You know, kind of, what, what is the type of king that we want? We want the one who's going to feed us you know, in the wilderness and keep feeding us every day. We want the one who's going to make us victorious and great and grand and you know, kind of make the nation great and all of those types of things. He's going to be the one that restores all our fortunes. But this is not someone who's going to die. You know, kind of, how does that work? Mm. What is Peter's understanding then of who Jesus is from, from what he says to him? That, that he is the one who's going to go to Jerusalem, overthrow the powers that are there, particularly the Roman Empire, kind of, and is going to restore Israel to its former glory. So he's, he's thinking in terms of a territorial king, a king of this world, um, a, political, a political king. Yeah, all of those things, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. kind of, that Jesus is just going to set up another empire, basically, you know, and, but opposed to the Roman Empire around them. Mm. So in contrast to that, what sort of king is the Lord Jesus Christ? He's the opposite, <laughs> yeah, kind of. And this, this, this is what he's saying here. Now, it's not all in, all in its detail at this point, but we're getting hints of what this new kingdom is going to look like. It's going to be one where the king goes and is, sacrifices his life for the people. And that, that's what we're going to see is that actually that's, 
it's a kingdom that's beyond this world, but because it's beyond this world, it's everlasting as well. Mm. So I suppose the question remains, what sort of king do we all need? Well, it's that type of king, because if we look around us, yeah, all of the things that we desire, all the things that we hope for, are never met uh, by those in this world. They're, they're just, you know, kind of, we, we elevate saviours, we elevate uh, whether it's regimes or or empires or whatever it is, to the point of uh, being things that, that, that save us, being, being things that want to kind of bring our kind of fortune into our life. But they never do. Uh, they only end up being disappointing. And so what we really need is an eternal king, uh, a different kingdom. That's the thing we're all really thirsting for. Mm-hmm. Now, why does Jesus respond to Peter the way he does there in verse 33? What does he say to him? Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's pretty harsh, isn't it? It's pretty, pretty full <laughs> on, yeah. <laughs> you know, but um, I don't think he's actually saying Peter is Satan, you know, no. kind of there. But, you know, what Peter is saying is what Satan desires because it's the anti you know, kind of anti-God, you know, really. It's, that, that would be Satan's reign and rule. If, say, if Satan uh, kind of came uh, and set up his kingdom, that's what, that's what it would be like, him, him on the top, uh, reigning and ruling. And so that, that is what Satan even wants for Jesus. You know, in, in the temptation of Jesus, isn't that what he says? I will set you up, mm. you know, to be the king of, of all these kingdoms, but who would really be the ruler there would be Satan. And so... Um, Satan is tempting Jesus to say, hey, come and take over this world. Come and be like all of the empires and all the kings in this world. You know, be the one who's all-powerful uh, through physical violence and, and through oppression. Uh, but, and so what he's saying to Peter is there, that is the temptation that I have in front of me, and I don't want to go there. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty stark and dramatic words, and he knows why he's come, and he's going to he's going to do it, isn't he? Thank you, Ian. Um, wonderful discussion. Next time, we're going to come on and look at uh, Mark chapter eight, verses thirty-four through to nine nineteen. Ian, Reverend Ian Reed of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. Thank you so much, Ian, and thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge, who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Thanks, Brent. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.